I am going to read the passage for this morning. It is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and by two men for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them. Father, we come into this place this morning with a lot of different things going on, a lot of different thoughts and emotions. Some of us are dealing with uh, some personal stuff, just stuff in our everyday life that's difficult and challenging. Some of us are mourning the loss of a friend. Some of us are righteously angry about the things we see going on in our country and our world. And so, Father, we bring all that to you this morning. We ask that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Help us to hear from your word. This is an old story, and yet in a strange way it speaks, I think, very directly to our time in history right now. And so help us to hear what we need to hear from your word this morning, and help us to do the hard work of applying your truth to our lives, both individually, but also collectively as a community. If we need a word of encouragement, encourage us. If we need to be challenged, challenge us. If we need to be comforted, comfort us this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's start off on a slightly lighter note. How many of you have noticed that there's this like nostalgic thing going on in our culture right now? There's this like looking back to past and past eras. We do things like collect vinyl. There's all these like TV show reboots going on. We're putting new spins on old stories. This raises the question for me, do we really need another Tarzan movie? <laughs> I'm just learning about this in the last like 48 hours. There's also this like Pokemon thing going on right now that I totally do not understand and yet I think fits into this nostalgic kick that we are on. We idealize certain decades or eras. It's interesting to me because one of the like, big things right now is the 90s, and I grew up in the 90s. It's like my decade, and it's like coming back in a big way, which is sort of cool and sort of weird. Makes me feel old, to be honest. <laughs> Social commentators will point out that when these kinds of movements happen, when there is a rise of nostalgia in a culture, it almost always coincides with a moment of significant technological advancement. 
the better, fancier, and cooler technology create, the more it seems we want to look back to the past. And so it's no surprise then that here in this particular moment, as we sort of stand on the edge of self-driving cars and artificial intelligence, and as we have the world in our pocket at any given moment, that we are also looking back. That we're more and more interested in vintage stuff and past eras and older things. University of Louisville marketing professor Scott Johnson writes in an article where he's looking at how companies are using nostalgia to sell stuff. The point of nostalgia is it harkens back to a perceived better time. It feeds the self-deception that we can go back to an easier time in life. Now, however nostalgic we might be for a past that we perceive as being simpler or better or easier, we still have faith in technology, in the things that we create. We give ourselves over to this all the time in a million different ways. There is this sense, and sometimes it's not even a sense, sometimes it's a very blatant belief that technology is going to make our lives better, safer, and more prosperous. And yet this continual pull of nostalgia, I think, communicates that there's an unease that we have with progress. And again, whether we're able to articulate this or not, this reality that we know technology is not going to be able to save us and is not going to be able to solve all of the problems that we see in our world. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis, and so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 here today. If you have your Bible, you can open to that, or if you still are looking at it, that's where you want to be. Before we get into this particular story, though, a little bit of a recap to remind us about where we have been and also to sort of build the context for this story that we're looking at today. So, so far we have seen that the book of Genesis was written for the people of Israel, this group of people who had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They had recently been freed from that slavery. And as slaves, they had had their sense of identity, their sense of history sort of pounded out of them by being slaves to this empire. And so this book is about reforming their identity, about answering those deep human questions. Who am I and what am I doing here? Who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? And not just those questions, but also helping this group of people remember who their God is, this Yahweh who rescued them from slavery in Egypt Who is he and what is he like? And so, so far, we have spent all of our time in what scholars call the prehistory, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. These are really big, cosmic, all-earth, all-human-being kind of stories. And these stories are really raising the tension between God's good worlds, which we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, his good created world, and then the disastrous effects of sin on that world. And that's chapters 3 through 11, which we are again wrapping up this morning. We've seen that God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2 to flourish through a web of interconnected right relationships, what the Old Testament calls shalom. We spent quite a bit of time unpacking that, but to summarize, Shalom is uh, referencing the way that things ought to be, the way that God created the world to function, this good ordering of right relationships between him and people, between human beings, and between humans and the rest of creation. This was intended to be a rich state of affairs marked by deep connection, purposeful, meaningful work, 
and the very real and sustaining presence of God right there in the midst of his creation. That's the picture we get from the first two chapters. And then beginning in chapter 3, we see that humans rebel against this good order. They vandalize the shalom. And this web of right relationships begins to unravel. Adam and Eve introduce sin into the world. They break relationship in each of those directions, again, with God, with each other, with creation. But their story in particular, I think, highlights our broken relationship with God. Remember that very poignant scene where God goes walking in the garden and he asks them, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? Illustrating the distance that now exists between God and humans. Then we looked at the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, again, we're looking at these broken relationships in each direction. He certainly has a broken relationship with God, but his story illustrates the impact that sin has on our human interactions. His anger with God leads him to murder his brother. And then the third of the four, kind of the big four stories here is the story of the flood. And again, broken relationships all over the place. But in particular, that story looks at the effects that sin has on all of creation, right? Everything being wiped out by the flood. So there's this pattern in each of these stories. There's a sin. We see some way that shalom is vandalized. There's a consequence to that sin, a judgment that God places on that. And then, surprisingly, there is this moment of grace at the end. Each story, there's this moment of grace. God covers Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, who tried to cover up their sin and shame, cannot do it on their own. So God covers them. God keeps, God protects Cain, even though Cain could not keep and protect his brother. And then God makes this covenant with Noah and really with the rest of creation to never destroy it again. So all of this leads us to this story again another somewhat famous story the tower of babel this is the capstone story of the prehistory section of the book of genesis and it's an important story i think it's an important story for us right now in this moment because it shows us that sin is both relational but it is also systemic so if you have your bible looking at genesis chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 We read this, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. So this story begins by letting us know that at this point, everyone is still somewhat together and on the same page, in the same place, speaking the same language. Now, if you read back into chapter 10, this sometimes causes confusion for people, but if you read back into Genesis chapter 10, it talks about how Noah's sons... Noah's toledot. Remember this word toledot means generations, and it's one of the key literary markers throughout the book. But Noah's toledot, his sons begin to have offspring, and then those offspring start breaking up into different groups of people. And we need to remember that the prehistory in Genesis doesn't function the same way that we think of history. And actually, Genesis 11 is explaining how Genesis 10 happens. So there's a little bit of a flip there, just in case you guys are confused about that. But anyway, at this point, verse 1 of chapter 11, people still together, speaking the same language, and it says that they are migrating to the east. And if you've been paying attention in this series, you notice that each one of these stories talks about how people are moving further and further east. This has been happening since Adam and Eve. 
As people move eastward, they are literally and symbolically moving farther and farther away from Eden. Farther and farther away from the way that God intended the world to function farther and deeper into the vandalism of Shalom. So they're moving east. They settle in Shinar. This is another name for Babylon, what would be modern-day Iraq. And this is actually a very significant clue to the meaning of this story. Babylon is a reference, almost a prophetic reference to a future empire an empire that will enslave God's people. And so this is a story about the evil that is possible when humans turn their attention from the worship of God to the worship of the empire. We'll have more to say about this in just a moment. Now let's dig a little bit deeper here into these first couple of verses. This word settling is also very important. As they move eastward, they're not just camping. They're not just putting up some tents and building some campfires. They are building civilization and civilization building is a massive undertaking right it requires lots of leadership and coordination and large numbers of people so this gives you a sense of what is happening moving eastward farther away from shalom beginning to build an empire this foreshadowing of babylon verse three they said to one another come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This is the first tech startup right here. The brick was a significant step forward in human development. This is a brand new technology that is revolutionizing the way human beings live. It allowed them to build in a far more efficient and ambitious way than ever before. So there's this sort of new thing. There's this novelty to this technology. But again, remember who the original audience for this story is. It's Israel having been freed from slavery in Egypt, which what were they doing? They were making bricks, brick after brick after brick to help build the Egyptian empire. Again, a pretty significant clue to the meaning of this story. So what did they do? With these bricks, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they take their blocks and they start building a tower. Now, one thing we need to be clear about here, there's nothing particularly wrong about wanting to make something cool. There's not anything particularly sinful about using or engaging with technology, but the question here is why are they doing this? What is the end of this project? What is the purpose of this project? Who does this technology serve? Does this tower building project help extend and expand God's shalom or is it simply to help build the empire? The goal, according to verse 4, is to make a name for themselves. And that word name can be translated as reputation. Let's make a great reputation for ourselves. Now that might seem somewhat innocuous, but this is actually completely antithetical to the idea of shalom. The way God intended the world to function involved discovery and work and invention and creation. We've been talking about this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 in what we've been calling the creation mandate where God gave humans dominion over 
creation. We were supposed to discover brick and mortar. We were supposed to make and build things. We were supposed to organize and steward the resources under our care. But the intention of all of that was to make God's name great. It was to sustain and extend God's shalom, God's dream for his creation. When they say, let us protect ourselves in this city and make our name great with this tower, this is a direct affront to the way that God intended the world to function. Look at that final phrase there in verse 4. Lest we be scattered. Let's make our name great lest we be scattered. Now, again, somewhat of a positive impulse here, right? This desire to be together. This desire probably for protection, strength in numbers, if you will. The warrior fans get that. <laughs> but there are two massive problems with this. First, this story we need to remember is pre-internet, right? This is also pre-printing press, pre-writing, pre-all of the technologies that we use for preserving information and stories and knowledge. If the people are scattered and dispersed and you make something awesome, how do you let people know? Without a book, without Instagram. How does anybody know? Your name can only be great if people know who you are and what you've done. This is, again, back to the Warriors, this is how they got Kevin Durant, right? <laughs> Kevin, you could win one title in Oklahoma City, people there will love you. Or you can come here and win many, many, many titles. And people will remember you forever. It's the Tower of Babel. Now, all joking aside, what is going on here? What is this all about? This desire to build something awesome, this desire to be together and to appreciate it, this desire for a great name is essentially a quest for immortality on our own terms. This is the quest for immortality on our own terms. Now, the second problem here is that human beings are trying to bring order from the chaos and are themselves calling it good. This is a reflection of what God does, of course, in chapter 1 when he creates the world. But they are doing it in a way that is antithetical to how God set things up. Humans are worshiping their own creation rather than the creator of the universe. So verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I'm sort of a visual person, so I love this picture. Okay, these guys are building this tower higher and higher, and God's coming down, and they're like, whoop, right past each other. <laughs> they miss God as he's coming down and as they're building their way up. There's actually a lot of theology that works this way, right? It's all about getting us up to heaven. And I think sometimes in our attempt to get ourselves up to heaven, we can miss the God who is with us, Emmanuel, God with us, God who has come down to be with us, and we are sort of shooting past him, trying to get ourselves to heaven. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
Now, if you've been around for this series, there's some language here that should sound familiar to you, this language of oneness. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 2. And so a question that comes up, at least it comes up for me, is this. If God cares so much about oneness, if God is one and desires to be one with us, why would he create this confusion? Why would he sow the seeds of a confusion that, let's be honest, continues to plague us to this very moment? Now here's where we get to the heart of the story. The story comes last, I think, in the prehistory section because it is the ultimate summary of the impacts of sin on the shalom of God's good creation. This story is the ultimate summary of the impacts of sin on the shalom of God's good creation. We see here broken relationships between God and man, man and each other, man and creation. But this story goes even a step further because here we are introduced to systemic sin. This is not just about broken relationships between people or about individuals. This is idolatry, putting something other than God at the center and then systematically institutionalizing that into the fabric of the culture. Everybody was participating in it. So God's judgment here in this story is to scatter and confuse, which in a way that is maybe difficult to wrap our minds around, makes systemic sin more difficult, but also easier at the same time. More difficult because it is now harder for people to get together with this confusion in different languages and different cultures, and yet easier because there are now different groups of people and languages and cultures and all the divisions that come from that are now possible. Now, back to the unity question. Of course, God is not opposed to unity at all, but the shalom God desires for his creation is not spread through empires and idolatry. It is spread through, as we'll see here in a moment, his son and his church. God is opposed to tower-building projects. He's opposed to empire-building He's opposed to institutionalized idolatry. Verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now I think this story probably has many applications, but there's two things that I feel that we need to sit with this morning. And the first is this, Eric Fromm, writing many years ago now, long before the iPhone, said, man is always on the verge of regressing to the worship of the tangible products of his own hands. There is a massive warning, I think, in the Tower of Babel story about the power that technology has over our lives, about the illusion technology creates that we are in control, that we are getting better as a civilization, that we are moving forward just because we made something new, we've discovered something, we created some sort of new thing. So I think a question for us is, do we worship created things? Or do we worship the creator of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things? So there's a warning here about technology, but this is far deeper than just a tech issue. We are, especially in America, I think, constantly seduced into tower building projects. 
We've idolized power and we've institutionalized that idol, forgetting that the only real source of power is Yahweh himself, is God himself. And what does God tell us about how he uses his power? God demonstrates his power most dramatically by letting it go, by giving it up. Mark chapter 10, Jesus overhears his disciples arguing about who will be the most awesome person in his kingdom. And so he says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Come back to that in just a moment. We've seen, again, each of these big four prehistory stories involves a sin, a break in relationship, and then a judgment, a consequence to that break. And then there's this moment of grace. And one of the questions about this story is, where is the grace? Some will argue the grace in today's story is in the scattering and God limiting the destruction that humans are capable of. I actually think that's part of the judgment. And I think that the author here intentionally leaves this open-ended and ambiguous, leaves us struggling to see where the grace is because as this section of the book of Genesis closes, they want us to ask and wrestle with the question, what ultimately is God going to do about this sin problem? Is this just going to continue on and on and on? Sin, judgment, grace, sin, judgment, grace, forever and ever? Or is there some other thing that he is going to do about this? We'll see as soon as next week, in fact, that God is going to do something definitive about sin. And that plan begins with a guy named Abraham. It's from Abraham's Toledot, Abraham's generation, through his family, that God will provide the ultimate answer to the sin question and even though this may sound somewhat simple the answer to the question is Jesus Jesus who comes and can trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham as we just read Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many it is through Jesus's life and death and resurrection that we are healed and restored and redeemed to God to each other and to the world and it is through Jesus that the judgment of Babel is ultimately reversed you have to fast forward all the way to Acts to discover the grace in the Babel story In Acts chapter 2, Jesus' disciples are hanging out in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone to return to heaven to be with his Father. And he's told his closest friends and disciples, wait here for my presence to show up in a whole new way. And so they're sitting there waiting. And here's what we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's a big like wink, wink, hint, hint right there. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from where? Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. They were confused because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Do you see the echoes of Babel, the reversal of Babel in this scene? God, through the Holy Spirit, is bringing unity, is bringing oneness to our broken world, not through the building of an empire, not through a tower, but through the building of his church. Now, there should be no doubt in our minds that we still live in Babel. And that this empire seduces us with the idol of power constantly. As a result, the empire is in the business of vandalizing shalom. We see it in the economic disparities in our country. We see it in our political system. We've seen it this week in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis and Dallas. You can see it right here in Oakland. Friends, technology is not going to bring shalom. Facebook posts are not going to redeem us. Legislation and elections will not reverse Babel. Neither will going back to some previous era that we perceive as being better. Only the subversive love of the God of the universe who gave up his power, who allowed his son to be killed by the empire so that his name would become the name above all names. Only that kind of love unleashes the true power to dismantle empires, to overcome personal and systemic sin for true healing and redemption to take place for real community to flourish. Very few people, especially during a week like the one we have just seen, look to the church as the way forward. But it is. The church, Christ's body broken and poured out for the world is the only way forward and so it may seem like coming here and sitting in this building on Sunday morning is the last thing that we should be doing and yet this is the plan now what is one practical thing that we can do to model and live out this radical upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom his kingdom that subverts all other kingdoms I want you to look one more time at Acts 2, verse 6. This is a passage of Scripture that oftentimes divides the church because we argue about tongues and what that means and all this kind of stuff. But notice what it says here. What was remarkable to people? What bewildered them? They were able to hear each other. They were able to hear each other. There's a lot of talking right now. Am I right? When we live in the reality of Babel, we want to talk. We want to talk, we want to talk. We want people to listen, we want to be recognized. But when we live in the reality of the resurrection, when we live in the reality of Pentecost, we listen. The song that Jane shared with us is about people living in Babel and the divisions and misunderstandings and lack of compassion that run rampant in Babel. We cannot be... Babel people. We must be Pentecost people, and Pentecost people listen. They have ears to hear. 
And from that hearing, they are moved by compassion. They are, again, broken and spilled out as Jesus was broken and spilled out for the good, for the shalom of the world. And so as we close here, as we move to a time of communion, I just have a question for you. What reality are you living in? Are you living in Babel? Are you being seduced into worshiping the empire's idol of power? Or are you living in the reality of Pentecost? Subversively laying your life down for the shalom of the Creator's kingdom. Are you living in the reality of Babel or the reality of Pentecost? Let's pray. Father, I do want to pray specifically for our country, which is so deeply divided along a variety of lines. And there are worthy cries for justice that we need to pay attention to. But the way forward, according to your word, is through the church, is through a group of people committed to Jesus, laying their lives down for the good of others. And so there are important conversations we need to have. There are important truths that we need to listen to. But may we as a church spend our energy giving ourselves away for your dream of shalom, your dream of restoration, of reconciliation. May we be people who are quick to listen and slow to speak. And may that listening breed tremendous compassion for the hurt and the pain of people who are being crushed by the empire of power that we have built in this country. God, I confess I have no idea where to begin on some of these things. And I'm sure many of us feel a sense of helplessness or confusion. And so may we begin here with listening and with compassion through giving ourselves up for the good of others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.